today we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, and and I, I, I want to uh, bring something to your attention. Um, do you know that this ritual is the only repeated ritual of our faith? That the, the Lord's Supper, taking communion, is the only thing that we repeatedly do as a ceremony in our entire Christian faith. And many of us are used to that now, um, but it bears repeating. After, after uh, for, for, for an Old Testament Israelite, they would be shocked by this. I mean, God took many, many centuries to build a, a faith system into their lives that called for so many different kinds of sacrifices for the Jewish believer, bulls and rams, and sheep and doves were offered regularly at the temple for all kinds of various reasons, thanksgiving, sin offerings, votive offerings, free will offerings. There were rituals of ceremonial cleansing for all kinds of aspects of life. Uh, even down to the clothing you could wear, there were regulations about how you wore what as a way to honor God and say that you were His per a part of his people. Um, the rite of circumcision, of course, is famous, uh, but there are so many more things, rules for priests and rules for temple worship. All of these things were conceived of by God to set his people apart as holy and to bless them. And the Lord brought it all to an end in Christ Jesus. And, and in Christ Jesus, he said, essentially, it was all pointing to one thing. It was all pointing to one person. And in particular, it was pointing to one sacrifice. And, and this thing, this one person and what he did is what it was all pointing to. And that's why we do one thing ritualistically, repeatedly in the Christian faith, according to the Bible. And, and you know, as God's word for the believer in Christ Jesus this is what we are told to remember explicitly more than anything else, explicitly, specifically repeated. We don't repeat our baptism. There's no ritual for church membership spelled out. We don't, in our faith tradition, you know, in various denominations and faith traditions over 2,000 years, we've come up with things like confirmation maybe, or baby dedications or first communion as a big one-off. There's nothing necessarily wrong with those big ceremonies. Um, over centuries, we've developed in the Christian faith liturgies and creeds, and these can be wonderful. I'm not saying anything against them. They can be absolutely vital, vital but, but none are explicitly commanded and prescribed by the Lord or his apostles as a repeated ceremony. There's only one. The Bible doesn't say repeat the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. The Bible doesn't say make sure you do three songs, then have a time of sharing, then have a 50-minute time of preaching. It doesn't say that. We're, we are taught in Scripture to meet on the first day of the week. That's what the, the people clearly did. We're taught to sing. We're taught to teach the Bible. We're taught to give to the poor. We're taught to give to the ministry of God's Word. We're taught to deeply desire and pursue the spiritual gifts so that we can prophesy to one another and build each other up when we gather together. That's all, but that's all what we're supposed to do generally. But there's all kinds of freedom, right? And and what that can look like. There's all kinds of freedom in these choices of singing and what we're going to preach and and the various ministries of the Holy Spirit that might come in any meeting that might be different from week to week. But there's not a lot of options about this. 
there's one repeated explicit ceremony, one that is non-negotiable, one thing we're called to do again and again, and that is to remember Jesus Christ in his body and his blood given for us. You might call Christianity a faith of many vital disciplines to choose from, but one commanded ritual. A faith of many vital disciplines to choose from, but one commanded ritual. And, and it's this, to break bread and to drink of the fruit of the wine, the vine, as a way to remember, not only with our minds, but with our bodies, with our hands and eyes and taste buds, with our mouth, the offering of our precious Lord for our sins. We're called to take this reminder metaphorically into the very deepest places of ourselves, all the way down to the center of our bodies, literally ingesting it into our bodies. We're called to symbolically experience it as, as actual food, metaphorically, something that we receive every day, food, something that we literally can't live out, live without, food and drink. Why? Why is there such a big emphasis? Why did Jesus say, of all things, I'm giving you one ritual to do? And, and, and to, to take a fresh look at that question, I want to go back to what Robin preached, to the section of scripture that Robin preached from last Sunday. And, and, and in going back to it, I want to slow way down to the very middle of that passage at what I think is, is what I'm calling the ground zero of hope. And if I had a, a title for today's message, it would be that, the ground zero of hope. It's a section that I believe contains the, the greatest, most joy-giving, most hope-sustaining, most energy-fueling, most uh, God-glorifying, and joy-instilling truth in, in all the Bible. And it's, it's in the middle of that section from last week from Romans 8. I should have said that at the outset, so I'm going to say it now. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Romans 8. That's one thing I'm supposed to put at the very beginning of messages to get you guys ready. Um, but that's where we're going. We're going to Romans 8, and we're going to start at verse 28. We're going to go all through to the end, but right in the middle of Romans 8, in this section today of 28 to the very end, we're going to stop and we're going to slow way down when we get there. And, and I'll show you guys where that is. Um, so <laughs> if you've got your Bibles, please go to Romans 8. I'm going to briefly go over uh, the first section of 28 to 30. Then we're going to hit ground zero. And then we'll briefly expand after that to the end. So starting in Romans 8 verse 28, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And that Greek brothers is a generic. It really it's like mankind. It means brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called. He also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So right away in verse 29, we see that God has a purpose for your life. You've heard that idea, you know, um, have a, 
what's God's plan for my life? What's what what's his what's the goal of my life? Well, it it it's right here. What's God's will for my life? Well, broadly speaking, but fundamental fundamentally speaking, it's right here. God has a will for your life. He has a plan for your life, and it's right in verse 29. It is to conform you to the image of Jesus. Marriage is secondary. Singlehood is secondary. This job is secondary. This hometown is secondary. Whether you have kids or not is secondary. I'm not saying those things are unimportant, uh, but this is what's primary, to conform you to the image of Jesus. You have been predestined by God for that. Before you were born, God chose you to make you look like the most beautiful, most glorious being in existence. He chose you to look perfectly like the most beautiful, most glorious being of ex in existence, his very son. This is where you are headed through all kinds of trial, through all kinds of pain, through all kinds of joy, through all kinds of blessing. God is going to use all of that. God is going to use, we've said it before, God will use even things he hates, like pain and suffering, to accomplish things he loves, which is to conform you to Jesus' image and make you beautiful and glorious. God is taking you not to a destination physically, but to a destination ontologically. That is who you are going to be. And what you are going to end up being for all eternity is someone who perfectly delights in goodness, is full of unconquerable joy, is someone who is satisfied beyond, under, beyond understanding, satisfied by God and his glory. Someone who is able to enjoy to the utmost all of God's gifts, music and arts and friendship, creativity, all of God's gifts and food and sleep, all of them without worshiping a single one, but enjoying God in the center of all of those things. Someone who is so full of a holy contentment that spiritual health comes out of everything you do. Someone who is so secure in God's love for you and so convinced of God's eternal faithfulness to you that you yourself become perfect in love, in compassion, in patience towards others, just as God is towards you. That's God's plan for you. It's much better than that. There's much more to it than that, but that's his plan for you. And Paul puts that plan in verse 30 in time and space. He takes it from God's mind and he puts it into what actually happens in the life of a person. In verse 30, he says, those whom God predestined, he also called. And then those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. So he, he predestined you. God chose you for this before you were born. And then God executed this decision of his to love you in, infinitely in, in, in a place and time on this earth when he called you. He broke into your life on this earth and he called you. He made you start to be able to see him with spiritual eyes when before you were blind to him his beauty and his goodness. He showed you your need for a savior. He showed you that you had sins that offend a holy God. And he showed you that this holy God was also a God of forgiveness. And he made you see his savior in his son, Jesus Christ. And this call worked. You heard, you saw, and you turned to him. 
and you found that he was suddenly no longer a stranger to you, but your father. And you were suddenly no longer separated from him, but you were his child. He called you and his call worked. And Paul says one day he will glorify you. Even though Paul puts it in the past tense, it really is talking about the future completion of your journey. That is, God will finish the work he started, perfecting you, making you fully and perfectly glorious like his son. This won't happen fully and perfectly until your own death and resurrection. But it is so certain that Paul puts it in the Greek, what's called the Greek aorist tense. We translate it as past tense, those he glorified. But what, what the tense is really communicating is this is a guaranteed, completed, done deal. You will be glorified just as he called you, just as he woke you up to him. He is going to finish the work he started in you. As Philippians 1, 6 says, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You are on the track to spiritual perfection of love, of joy, of trust. But did you notice I skipped over something? Between being called and being glorified, there's the word I left out called justified. Do you see that? Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he called and those whom he called, he justified. He justified you. We've talked about this before, but we need to talk about it again because it has everything to do with communion. And it has everything to do with your relationship with God now and being able to rightly and healthily embrace him and express him. Justified is, as we said before, it's, it's a legal term first. It, this is courtroom language. It is a moral judgment from a moral judge. It's a verdict speaking to what is just and fair. Justified is synonymous with the verdict from a judge that we, we hear not guilty or innocent. The Bible goes further in its language and it uses the word righteous. So when you were justified as regards to the law, you were cleared of all wrongdoing. You now have a moral and just and free right to peaceful existence with God forever. The word here, again, it's, it's, it's legal language. It doesn't mean it's superficial or hollow. What I'm trying to say is it's not speaking to the heart condition of your heart right now, whether it's a great heart or a poor heart. It's speaking to your status in the sight of God in his courtroom and in the court of God, according to God's law, because God is a holy God of justice, in that courtroom, there is no charge left against you. You are justified from all charges. All charges are justly dismissed. This is the decree that God gives to David. When David says in the Psalms, he says this, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. See, again, this is not a question of whether David had sinned or not. Implicit in David's song there is that he has sinned. It's a question of whether God is counting your sins against you or has forgiven you and no longer holds them against you. And the answer is, when you're justified, he will not count your sins against you. 
And this forgiveness, this justification, this gift of a righteous standing in God's court of law, it comes to people who do not deserve it in a moment in time, and it lasts forever because it comes through Jesus Christ who lasts forever. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But it, it, it's so easily foreign to our conception. When we think of justified or righteous, we immediately go to our condition, our character. But in Romans 4, God says he justifies the wicked. He says, Paul says, to him who earns his wages, his wages, his paycheck, are not counted to him as a gift, but as what he earns. But then he says, but to him who does not earn, but trusts him who justifies the wicked, God credits it as righteousness. So it comes to us through trusting God, not through being perfect. And, and, and we see this as, as God talks about how he justified Abraham. If you might remember in the Old Testament, it says that Abraham believed God's promise and it was credited, credited to him, to Abraham, as righteousness. That is, God believed, Abraham believed what God was saying, and on the basis of the fact that God, that Abraham, rather, depended on God's promise, God considered Abraham justified, righteous, forgiven, innocent. Abraham was far from innocent. He was far from being a perfect, law-keeping man. But because he simply trusted the promise of God, God forgave him of all of his sins and gave him an unalterable righteous standing in his courtroom. The Lord, the language of the Bible is, the Lord credited to him or accounted him as righteous. And this verdict of righteous, it is rock solid because it comes from a God who is the highest authority and is perfectly just and perfectly moral. In fact, once God calls you justified or righteous in his sight because of Jesus, condemnation against you is morally impossible. Did you hear what I said? I said it's morally impossible. It would be unfair. We'll talk more about that, but it's sufficed enough to say it would be unfair because you have been declared righteous by the highest and truest standard of righteousness and justice in the universe. That is God himself. It would be, it would be like someone handcuffing you after nine Supreme Court justices cleared you of all charges and saying instead of walking free, which you should, when nine Supreme Court justices say you're not guilty, you're innocent, you have a righteous thing in this courtroom, no bailiff is going to come over and put handcuffs on you and take you into prison because these justices have decreed what they've decreed. And that's what it means to be justified. But, but this good news gets better. And Paul is just getting started as he considers these implications of what he said so far. And, and now we're coming to what I call the ground zero of hope, the ground zero of unbreakable hope. This is verse 31 to 34. Read this with me if, if you can. And yellow it, highlight it in your Bible, underline it. Never let this go for the rest of your life. Here's what he says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? This is it, folks. This is the ground zero of your hope and my hope. This is the ground zero, the engine room of your salvation. This is why, of all things, when Jesus said, do this in memory of me, he asked us to remember his body and his blood broken and poured out for us. Let's look at this. Paul says in verse 32, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And at first, this really hits us, doesn't it, as an argument about strength, like the infinite strength of God versus the imperfect strength of anything else. If God is for us, i.e., if the greatest possible being, all-powerful, all-wise in every respect is for us, there's nothing that can defeat us, right? It's logical. Who can stand against the one who sustains all things? Who can stand against the one who sustains all of time and space and every molecule in the universe, including every molecule in you, simply by his will? Right? Everyone knows. No one could stand against such a being. But it's an argument of strength. But Paul does far more than make an argument of strength. Next, Paul goes and climbs the Mount Everest of love, of tenderness, of kindness. And he says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And right now, I just want to pray. Because I can preach these words, but I cannot make these words live in any of us. Lord, would you please, as we hear these words, would you make them alive in us? Would you, in your mercy, do what this passage is even talking about? And through your Holy Spirit, make these words life to us even now. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I think that God is saying something kind to you right here that could not be outdone by anything that will ever be said to you for all eternity. Like, I could be wrong. Lots can happen. I don't understand. Nobody. But, but my money is on that this statement right here is the kindest thing you will ever hear for all eternity. It will just become more and more meaningful to you for all eternity. These are, in my opinion, take it or leave it, the, the kindest things that can ever be said to you. They're infinitely kind. It's impossible to measure the kindness in them. They're the sweetest words your soul could hear. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? God gave his son over to death for you. God gave his son over to death for you. And even more when we unpack what that means. Folks, this is a love that cannot be contained. It cannot be calculated. We love people. We we love some people very, very deeply. And 
and maybe this is somehow short-sighted of me to say, but I, I, or reveals imperfections in my heart, but I have to be honest. I could not conceive of giving any of my children over to death for anyone. But God the Father gave God the Son over to death for you. He gave him over to shame and humiliation and nails and beating and spear and more than that, what we cannot see, he covered him with all of our sin, all of your sin. And then he punished him and executed for him for all of our sin and all of your sin. He made his son taste whatever hell that you and I deserved. Somehow Jesus paid the equivalent of eternal death and shame that is our due. And, and he did that because you needed it. And that's the humbling thing about the gospel. He did this because you needed it. It wasn't an extra. It wasn't icing on the cake. You desperately needed this. You needed to have a atonement for your sins. You needed to be shielded from justice punishment. And he did that because he loved you. So now Paul asks, if God was willing to do that, how will he be unwilling to do anything else that you need? How will he not also graciously give him you all things? Is God going to withhold mercy from you today that you need? If he crushed his son and gave him over to hell for you, is he going to withhold mercy that you need? Is he going to withhold patience towards you? that you need him to have towards you? Is he going to withhold spiritual strength that you need to keep holding on to him? Now listen, before you think what I'm not saying, God may and does withhold things from us and things that make us feel deprived or in pain. He might withhold things from you to help you see your need of him more deeply or help you come to the end of yourself more fully or help you understand his rescue in a greater way at some point later in time. He may bring, and he will bring, great trial to you to humble you. But even in doing so, God is giving you and protecting you from something perhaps far worse that would grow in your heart if he didn't bring the trial to you. He is using the trials to shape you and drive you to see something about him, to behold him in a way that you could not without it. But what you truly need, what you truly need to become like his son, he is going to give you so that you will become like his son, so that you become perfect and beautiful and glorious. Because he knows that that's the best thing for you and he's going to give you the best things. So what you truly need, is he going to withhold it? Paul's answer is no, this is impossible. It is impossible. Harder, harder than a fly slams into a great fly swatter. The idea that, that God would keep something from you that you truly need slams into the wall of simple logic and fierce love that cannot be overcome. If he gave his own son over to condemnation and death for you, how is he not going to give you anything else? And then in verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give with him graciously, graciously give us all things. God gives graciously. God gives freely. God gives generously. 
He spent all that he could possibly spend on you when he gave his son for you. He lavished the richest, most precious thing he had over you when he gave you Christ Jesus. So if he gave you infinite love, if he poured it all over you in Christ, is he not going to help you in your job situation or in your marriage situation or in your loneliness or in your battle with lust or your battle with greed or your battle with doubt? And the, Paul's answer is, it is logically impossible. <laughs> I mean, is God going to say, hey, I, I, I gave you my one and only perfect son. I gave him over to be your sin and to take your punishment. But that's as far as I'll go. I'm not going to help you with your financial situation. I mean, that's, that's, that's way, that's too much. Now you're, now you're asking for the big stuff. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, I see your car broke down. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you $4 trillion. But now your car's broke but that's all I'm willing to do. So good luck, little fella. No, no, Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. And he's arguing really at the core of it from a place of love, right? God is gracious towards you and he proves his gracious to you in his son. Now, now he makes his third argument. He's argued from strength. He's argued from love. Now he's going to make an argument about God's faithfulness to you from the point of view of God's justice, God's justice. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. So we already spoke earlier about God being the highest, most, most authoritative judge in the universe. When he says your record is cleared, your record is cleared. When he gives you a righteous standing, you have a righteous standing in his sight right? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. This isn't some third-rate bribed attorney or, or corrupted judge. This is God justifying you. This isn't even you justifying you. What does your opinion about yourself matter? It's God who justifies. His opinion is absolute truth. But now Paul explains why the wicked can be justified and it still be ethical. Paul explains why the sinner can be justified and it can still be called a moral, pure, holy thing. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Who will condemn you? Who, who will bring a condemning charge against you today? What happens if an accurate, assessment of your character shows moral failure what happens if an accurate accusation shows sin shows your selfishness shows your greed shows your cold-heartedness what happens when that comes before a holy god what does paul say happens before god when not a false but a true accusation against you comes into the courtroom of heaven well, here's what he says. The father cries out from the judge's throne. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Folks, these are the words not of Paul the apostle, but of the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? Who is to condemn you? Well, the answer is Christ Jesus has already died for that accusation. 
And that's the argument that's heard in the courtroom of heaven. Christ Jesus died for that. The Messiah was slain for that sin, for all of those sins. God cries out from his throne, my son was pierced and scourged and crushed and judged for that true accusation. God doesn't say, ah, don't worry about it. They make mistakes. It's no big deal. That's what the world says. God doesn't say, they're going to need to make up for that. They're going to need to pay me back for that. That's what the world says. God does not say, well, this changes things. I didn't know that about them. I mean, I saved them a few years ago, but now look at this. I didn't know that was going to come up. I had no idea they were like that. No, that's what we do with each other. No excuses for you and no, no IOU slips handed for your later repayment. No, every condemnation that comes against you, everyone, everyone that is real. And listen, I know there are plenty that are fraudulent. I know that Satan uses false accusations to discourage us. I know that he loves to condemn us and to keep us down. I know that we even use those against each other, right? We, we misjudge and judge each other. But God is never fooled by that. He's never fooled by any of that stuff. But he knows that many accusations do come into our hearts, many that he sees that are not baseless. He knows they have teeth. He knows they are real. He knows they grab our hearts. He knows that, that they have some merit. He knows that they have more merit than we often are willing to admit. We know we should not have said that thing we said. We know we should not have written that thing we wrote. We know that we should not have done that thing we did. We know that we should have said that instead or done this instead. We know that we should have loved more. We should have tried harder. We should have been more gracious. We should have been more patient. We should have been more gentle. We should have walked with more purity. We know. And God knows too. And to every accusation, God says, who will condemn you? No excuses. No payment plans. Christ Jesus was, died, was crucified. My son was condemned for that. There is no condemnation possible for you. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Infinite worth was crushed. The purest blood was spilled. What can be left for you to pay is what God says. Are there more beautiful words in the universe than who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. God wants you to know that your justification has legitimacy. It has moral merit in his courtroom. He wants you to feel it, to test it out, to probe it by hearing again and again. When he says forgiven and you say, how can that be? When, when you feel the condemnation, condemnation and he says not condemned, he wants you to look at his son crushed for you. Not so that you can feel guilty, but so that you can feel free. Not so that you can feel guilty, but so that you can feel free. It is the gift you need. In pride, we might not want to take it. We might want to be like Peter. When Jesus went to wash his feet, he said, no, no, Lord, don't wash my feet. Don't wash my feet. <laughs> no way. I'm not going to make be the kind of guy who's going to make you be my servant. 
You know what Jesus said? He said, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. <laughs> but he didn't yell at him. He didn't say, oh, you need this. You're so awful. I can't stand you. Oh, I got to do this. No, he said, you need this. I'm giving this to you. Receive this. You have to have this. But he wants you to feel it. He wants you to understand it. He wants you to know that his forgiveness has legitimacy. It has weight to it. When Jen and I were looking for a used car earlier this year to replace my old Saturn my dad had given me, we found this online private seller from Pennsylvania who was offering us this deal. I, I know I've, I've talked a little bit about this, but I'm going to take you down the rabbit hole a little bit. He was offering us this deal that was so good, it just seemed too good to be true. Like the deal we were getting for this car was so flipping good, it just seemed too good to be true. Hard to believe. The car was a big sedan. We needed a four-door sedan that I could put the kids in on the commute to school. It was only a few years old, and it was a big sedan that was only a few years old, and the mileage was only in the mid-30s. It had great reviews, perfect reviews. Now, there's no problem finding that car from many dealerships, but this was a private seller, and he was offering the car at like five to $6,000 less than we could find a dealer. You know, which was which was pretty much like a third of what the car was going to cost. So it was crazy. And then we found out as we worked with him and talked with him that, that this man was a believer in Christ. So we were especially hopeful that, okay, maybe this guy isn't going to rook us. But then there was some complications with his whole, that the car had a hold on it by the bank. And, and there was no financial problem with him. It was just a, a work issue, kind of what he was trying to do with his finances. And so it just seemed a little tricky. And so, again, now it started to seem too good to be true again, and we decided we were going to pull out of it. So as we started to pull out of backing out of the deal, he did something really surprising. He said to me and Jen, he said, you know what? Why don't you guys just keep the car for a week and try it out? See how it feels for you. Take it to your mechanic and have the inspection done. And if you don't like it, just leave it in the parking lot at your church and I'll come and get it. And it but if you want to buy it, I'll give you my bank account car loan so you can go online, go to my bank, open up my account and see how much money is really left to release this car because that's what I'm going to sell it to you for. Not what I paid for it, but the portion that's left in the loan. And you can see it and you can pay it right to the bank and we'll make a deal with your bank and my bank and, and it'll just be all, you know, we'll just do it that way. I mean, this guy went very far at great risk to him to let us know that his offer had legitimacy. Test out the car. Look in my bank account. He did this because he wanted us to know that he was someone we could trust and that this offer had legitimacy. He could not literally have done anything more to not only say, this is a great deal, but this deal has legitimacy. You can trust it. And today... God is doing the same thing. He not only tells you he loves you, he says, my love led me to justify you, to declare you innocent and forgiven and not guilty and give you a righteous standing in, in my court. But he's not only done that, said my love has led me to declare you righteous in my, in my court. He has shown you 
why that justification has integrity, why it's unbreakably incorrupt and pure, why its integrity is impeachable. And he does this when he says at the ground zero of your hope, who is going to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Every reason God could possibly have for turning away from you tomorrow, the next week, the next year, for shutting you out, every reason was destroyed when his son was condemned in your place with every aspect and bit of your failure and sin on him. It was wiped away. Your standing with God as righteous in his sight, your blamelessness before him, his love for you can never be destroyed because Jesus has destroyed every reason that it possibly could when he washed your sins away on his cross, when he paid for it all. This is why Paul can say with such confidence all the wonderful things he then goes on to say in this letter. Because God's love has reached as far as it could in Christ Jesus. And he wants you to see that and test it and feel it. And as if, as if Paul could add to, affection, to perfection, Paul then goes on to say in verse 34, who is to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And then he says, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you. For you. This sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary, it continues up to this very second to pour. It doesn't, the sacrifice doesn't continue, but the blessings that flow from it continue up to this very moment when Paul tells us that in the court of heaven, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sits at the right hand of God, the place of ultimate authority. And on the basis of his perfect sacrifice for you, he, in this moment, continues to intercede for you before a father who loves you already through the Holy Spirit. He, he works grace. Oh, yes, I did get the car. I saw a question. God works grace that keeps you on his side. He works grace that keeps you from walking away from him. He works grace that keeps you getting up off the ground when you fail and fall down. He works grace that keeps you from getting swept away by the lies of sin and the lies of this world and the lies of Satan to draw you away from him. He doesn't keep you from trial. Paul makes that very clear in the next verse, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. See, Paul doesn't say the painful things will not come into your life or hurt you, but he says on the basis of Christ taking your condemnation to the cross, on the basis of his present intercession to keep you faithful, he says they are not going to be able to separate you from me. They're not going to be able to separate you from me. Your heart may not be able to stand up to these things, but my power will be able to. My power in you will be able to. My power around you will be able to. And what's too great for you will not be too great for me. I will keep my hold on you to the end. No, verse 37, he says, you will become a conqueror through these things. 
You won't avoid them. You won't sidestep them. But through the worst things this life will throw at you, you will be a conqueror. Verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through our great strength, through our great brilliance, through our pull ourselves by our bootstraps attitude, through our awesome ideas and self-help books. No, he says we are more than conquerors. How? How? Through him who loved us. Through him. For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How are we conquerors? Through him who loved us. How did he show this love? He took our condemnation and now lives to intercede for us, to keep us in his love forever. And what's the result? We will never be separated from that love. And this, this, above all acts in the Bible, this ground zero of hope is what convinces us that this is true. This is why Jesus said, remember my body broken for you. Your forgiveness, your freedom, it has legitimacy. This, my blood poured out for you. The price has been paid. Remember, nothing can separate you from my love. I took away every reason in my son's blood. Remember that. Remember that. Of all things, please, church, he says, remember that again and again. Remember this. We must remember because we have to be convinced. And it takes a lifetime for many of us. It takes a lifetime to be convinced that he loves us, that we are truly forgiven. We must be convinced of that forgiveness, that it has legitimacy so that joy and hope and love from the Holy Spirit flow in our lives the way he means it to. Who wants to serve God out of fear? Who wants to serve God always looking over our shoulder to see if I'm going to make it today or if he's going to just crush me today? Who wants to live that kind of life? Who wants to try to live a life of performing and measuring up? Nobody wants to live that kind of life, and God does not want us living that life. That's why Paul said, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He said, the love of Christ compels me, not the anger of Christ. Not the fear of Christ. Yes, we should fear the Lord. He's a holy God. But don't you want to say with Paul, it's the love of Christ that compels my actions. That's maturity. And that's where he's taking us. And that's why he says, remember, remember. We have to remember that God only has reasons now because of Christ to be gentle to you and to be patient with you, to be kind to you, even in his discipline, even in the trials, he means for your good. He has a tender attitude towards you. He loves you. He loves you as he loves his son. We must remember moment by moment, day by day, he loves us. He's patient with us. He's forbearing with us. We must remember this until we see him face to face. And we have other reasons why we must remember. We have to remember because we have to help each other remember. We're in a family. We're not solo. It's not just about our prayer closet. 
We're in a family in order to help one another hold on to Jesus. We have to bring each other again and again to this, to this, if not on a Sunday in our hearts and minds, to recognize that the price has been paid, that we are loved by God, that we're not condemned. We have to remind one another that Jesus' death has opened for us a river of mercy from God that flows eternally, that flows eternally, even as we might even have to bring admonition or, or correction to one another. That's why Paul says, do it in a spirit of gentleness, because God does it in a spirit of gentleness to his children. And we have to remember, folks, because we live in a world that needs this, and so many don't have this. We live in a world that is, that is both, both increasingly hostile to the idea of a holy God who takes sin seriously, who will punish sin and therefore sinners. They're not only hostile to that idea, but they're becoming very quickly ignorant, ignorant of the truth that that same holy God loves them and wants them to come to him for reconciliation. It's becoming lost in our cultural memory. And we need to call people to this truth that, yes, God is holy. Yes, he takes sin seriously, but he wants to reconcile with you. He wants peace with you. And he's done everything to make that possible if you will simply trust his promise in Christ Jesus. It is a free gift received by believing God for it by trusting God for it. You can't earn it. You can't perform for it. That will just put you back in hell. It is a free gift. You have to depend on his promise. We have to tell the world this. For all these reasons, Jesus said, remember, remember, remember. So let's remember. Let's remember. Let's take a moment. Bring anything that's on your conscience to the cross of Jesus Christ in your mind. Bring anything that you is burdening your consciences Simply place it at the cross in your imagination right now, in your sanctified imagination. Give it to God. Confess it to him. And let's go to communion in just a few minutes. Let's come to him for his. Oh, holy Lord, thank you that you are also humble and gentle. Your yoke is easy. Your burden is light. Thank you that you see what we cannot see. You forgive what we cannot even remember or recall or see perfectly, God. We say with David, who can discern his error? Forgive even our hidden faults. Keep your servant also from presumptuous sins. May they not rule over us. Lord, you see far more than we do what is in our hearts. You know what is good and what isn't good. And you, Lord, in your Son, have conquered it all. He has proclaimed, it is finished. And we say, thank you, Lord, it is finished. 
And now you tell us to remember Jesus Christ offered as the full sufficient payment for our sins. And so we remember as you command us to remember. <clears throat> These are the words of the Apostle Paul quoting his Savior. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread and remember our Lord. After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the sins of many. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So we drink the cup of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Who is he that will condemn? Christ Jesus has died. And we've remembered that today. Brothers and sisters, your sins are forgiven. Jesus Christ our paschal lamb has been sacrificed. I pray that we would be able to live in the freedom of that, remind our hearts of that, and give it to one another. And as God gives us opportunities, share it with those who need him. Thank you guys for being together with me this morning to celebrate the Lord.